0: Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. In the 1860s, a Native American child was born named Black Elk. Raised among the Lakota people of the Great Plains, he grew up to become a medicine man. Black Elk had multiple paranormal visions. He participated in the Messianic Native American ghost dance movement, and he took part in famous events like the Battle of the Little Bighorn and the Battle of Wounded Knee, who was Black Elk, what happened in his life in What are the hidden truths about him? So does that end our story about black elk? No,
1: not at all, because authors Nyhart and Brown deliberately distorted the image of black elk. Their books are selective accounts that intentionally exclude truths about black elk. These truths give a very different picture of the man and what he believed. So next week, we'll be telling you the facts about black elk that were hidden from the public.
0: You're listening to episode 267 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the Lakota holy man, Nicholas Black Elk. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In the 1930s and 1950s, two extremely popular books were published about the Lakota medicine man, Black Elk. John Neihardt's book, Black Elk Speaks, and Joseph Eves Brown's book, The Sacred Pipe, were bestsellers. They shaped the public's understanding of Black Elk, but they deliberately suppressed facts about him that distorted the truth about the man. So thus, who was Black Elk? What did these books leave out, and what's the truth about him? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. Jimmy, where do we want to begin today's discussion?
1: Well, essentially where we left off last time with the publication of the books Black Elk Speaks and The Sacred Pipe. Despite how popular these became, in recent years they've come in for significant criticism. This is especially true of Black Elk Speaks. Even Wikipedia's page on the book notes,
0: Though Black Elk was Oglala Lakota, the book was written by Neihart, a non-native While the book is lauded by non-Native audiences and has been inspirational to many New Age groups, traditional Lakota people and Native American scholars do not consider the book to be representative of Lakota beliefs. They have disputed the accuracy of the account, which has elements of a collaborative autobiography, spiritual text, and other genres. The Indiana University professor Raymond DeMalley, who has studied the Lakota by cultural and linguistic resources, Published The Sixth Grandfather in nineteen eighty five, including the original transcripts of the conversations with Black Elk, plus his own introduction, analysis, and notes. He is questioned whether Nyhart's account is accurate and fully represents the views or words of Black Elk. The primary criticism made by DeMalley and similar scholars is that Nyhart, as the author and editor, may have exaggerated or altered some parts of the story to make it more accessible and marketable to the intended white audience of the 1930s, or because he did not fully understand the Lakota context. Late 20th century editions of the book by Nebraska University Press have addressed this issue by entitling the book as Black Elk Speaks, as told through John G. Nyhart, a.k.a. Flaming Rainbow. So Black Elk Speaks has been criticized
1: on grounds of inaccuracy, including charges that Nyhart may have exaggerated parts of the story and shaped his account to fit stereotypes that 1930s white audiences had about Native Americans, perhaps in hopes of increasing sales or otherwise helping the book have more impact on their views. What about The Sacred Pipe? The impression I have is that this book seems to have come off much better than Black Elk Speaks. It isn't a narrative historical book. It doesn't tell Black Elk's life story. Instead, it's a book about Lakota rituals, Unlike the Catholic Church, the Lakota do not have a set fixed form for every line in their rituals. It's not like they have an equivalent of the Roman Missal setting out exactly what words are to be said on every occasion. So there is room for variation between one Lakota practitioner and another. And when looking at Black Elk's account of these rituals, I gather that traditional Lakota practitioners have recognized them as broadly accurate. Thus, while it is only a selection of Lakota rituals and not a comprehensive guidebook, I have the impression that the Sacred Pipe is generally looked on favorably. What both the Sacred Pipe and Black Elk Speaks have in common, though, is that they focus on a particular period or aspect of his life. Black Elk Speaks essentially cuts off after the Battle of Wounded Knee and the Ghost Dance War that took place at the end of 1890 and the beginning of 1891. At the time, Black Elk was only 25 years old. However, Neihardt interviewed him in 1930 and 1931 when he was 65 or 66 years old, and he didn't pass on until August of 1950 when he was 84 years old. So what happened to that huge swath of the rest of his life? I mean, Why cut off discussion of his life at age 25 and just ignore everything that happened afterwards? You'd expect a book called Black Elk Speaks to speak about his whole life. So why focus on the first 30% of it? By the 1980s, people were realizing that this book in particular was only, at best, a selective account of his life. It ignored most of his life completely, and it gave a slanted account of the 25 years that it did cover.
0: Then let's take another look at Black Elk's life, the rest of it this time. What should we know? In 1892,
1: the year after the Ghost Dance War ended, Black Elk got married. His wife was named Katie Warbonnet, and together they had three children. Their son, Never Showed Off, was born in 1893. Their son, Good Voice Star, was born in 1895 and their son Benjamin, or Ben, was born in 1899. Now, a notable fact about Katie Warbonnet is she was Catholic. There was a Catholic mission on the Pine Ridge Reservation, and it was staffed by Jesuits, who the Lakota referred to as black robes because of the black cassocks that they wore, in contrast to Anglican ministers who were referred to as white robes, and Presbyterian ministers who were referred to as shortcoats the Jesuit presence at Pine Ridge was something that Chief Red Cloud had actually had to fight for. The Jesuits
2: began here really at the invitation of Chief Red Cloud in 1887. Red Cloud had to go to Washington several times and argue with the federal government, which had assigned this reservation to be Episcopal. Each reservation could have only one denomination. And he kept telling them, I want black robes for my children. I want black robes. And he finally prevailed. And the Jesuits came with sisters. And both the Jesuits and the sisters were themselves refugees from Germany. So you had refugees coming to talk to prisoners of war on this uh, reservation in a language that was foreign to both of them. And they had to communicate both in English. And neither of them knew it well.
1: The reason Chief Red Cloud wanted the Jesuits at Pine Ridge was because the Lakota had a greater respect for Jesuits than other Christian clergymen. One reason was that they provided schools with religious instruction, and another was the respect that Jesuits tended to show local cultures. This was something that Jesuit missionaries had been doing in other places of the world for a long time, most famously in the case of what were known as the Chinese Rites,
0: That's a term that many listeners may not be familiar with. What were the Chinese rites? Basically, there were a set of
1: customs in China, such as public ceremonies that honored the philosopher Confucius, ceremonies honoring one's ancestors, and the use of certain titles for gods, such as Xi'an, which is often translated heaven, and Shangdi, which can be translated highest emperor, though it can also be translated highest deity. When Jesuit missionaries, like the servant of God Matteo Ricci began evangelizing China in the late 1500s, they had to figure out which elements of Chinese culture were compatible with the Christian faith and which were not. The Jesuits judged that Confucius was a philosopher rather than a religious figure, and so he could be given civil honors just like Catholics in Europe revealed Plato and Aristotle. They concluded That ceremonies honoring one's ancestors were compatible with the Christian faith, the ancestors weren't being worshipped as deities, Uh, the Bible reveres patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and honor thy father and mother is one of the Ten Commandments. Also, if you want to call God heaven or highest emperor, that's not a problem either. The New Testament frequently uses heaven as a surrogate for the word God. That's why the Gospel of Matthew frequently uses kingdom of heaven, where the other Gospels use kingdom of God. And in Malachi 1.14, God says, I am a great king, so you could describe him as the highest emperor or king of kings. Also, to get the Gospel a better hearing, the Jesuit missionaries adopted Chinese forms of dress so that they wouldn't look weird or alien to the people they were evangelizing but not everybody agreed with the Jesuit approach. For a time, the Dominicans and the Franciscans did not agree with it. They eventually basically came around to the Jesuit view, but before that happened, they appealed the matter to Rome, leading to what became known as the Chinese Rights Controversy.
0: How did the Chinese Rights Controversy
1: unfold? Between the 1600s and the 1900s, the matter went back and forth a few times. Sometimes Rome gave a favorable ruling on the Chinese rights, and sometimes it gave an unfavorable one. When it did the latter, it hampered evangelization in China, as many Chinese individuals thought the Vatican was being arrogant and culturally imperialistic. The matter was finally settled in 1939 when Blessed Pius XII had the Congregation for the Evangelization of Peoples issue a decree that stated,
0: It is abundantly clear that in the regions of the Orient, some ceremonies, although they may have been involved with pagan rites in ancient times, have, with the changes in customs and thinking over the course of centuries, retained merely the civil significance of piety towards the ancestors, or of love of the fatherland, or of courtesy towards one's neighbors.
1: And the Chinese rites controversy was finally settled in favor of the Jesuit approach. Well, when Jesuits arrived in Pine Ridge, they had to engage in the same kind of sorting with Lakota traditions, which were compatible with the Christian faith and which weren't. And they achieved significant success.
3: Many Lakota did differentiate between Jesuits and other white men. The black robes were considered holy men, similar to Lakota spiritual leaders.
1: The Lakota were able to differentiate to the degree that they refrained from calling Jesuits, at least in the earlier period, white men.
2: There was a trust between the Lakota and the Jesuits that wasn't there between the Lakota and the
1: U.S. government. The Jesuits were able to carve out a little space in which they could see certain Lakota practices as acceptable, uh, from a religious perspective even. They agreed with a lot of the criticism of the U.S. government in terms of invoking spirits of some kind. They did not like the the piercing and the bloodletting of the Sundance. But they could recognize and even participate in some of the smaller ceremonial activities like the smoking of the pipe. So, yeah, don't invoke spirits in a way that's contrary to the faith. And they didn't like the bloodletting that was part of the Sundance, although, frankly, there's bloodletting in some Christian reenactments of Christ's passion. Uh, That happens in the Philippines and it happened here in America in the Los Penitentes Society in New Mexico, as we talked about in episode 232 on the spiral staircase. Though, to be fair, bishops were and are down on bloodletting in those circumstances as well. And if you want to smoke a pipe as a ceremony reverencing God, well, tobacco is essentially a kind of incense and a pipe is essentially a censer so that wouldn't be incompatible with the faith either in fact there's a famous picture from 1928 of two individuals sitting on the ground indian style in front of a tent one is a lakota man named red feather not the same person as chief red cloud red feather has a rosary around his neck and he's smoking a foot long ceremonial pipe The man next to him is the Jesuit missionary, Father Eugene Buchel, who is smoking his own European-style pipe. It was by this kind of show of respect, and not automatically calling everything of Lakota origin demonic, that helped Jesuits get a good hearing for the gospel and make converts. One of them was Black Elk's wife, Katie Warbonnet, and she made sure that all of their children were baptized and raised Catholic
0: even though her husband was a Lakota medicine man? Yes,
1: but a medicine man is essentially a folk healer. Uh, Folk medicine includes religious elements in every culture, but that doesn't mean that people view themselves as fundamentally in religious opposition. For example, many Lakota, even ones who do not identify as Christians, uh, believe in a single creator God. The Lakota term for God is Wakantanka, as we mentioned last episode, the Lakota word for holy or sacred is wakan. The word tanka means great or large, and so, etymologically, wakan tanka would mean the great holy one. It's commonly translated the great spirit or god. Some have also suggested the translation the great mystery, and it's been proposed that in times before contact with Europeans, The term essentially represented a community of holy beings, but it is commonly understood today in a monotheistic sense, and thus is conventionally translated Great Spirit or God.
0: What about other spirits? We talked about Black Elk's major boyhood vision last week, and in it he saw six elderly men or grandfathers, and one represented him as an old man, another represented Wakantanka or God and the other four were associated with the four directions, west, north, east, and south. Well, Christians believe in other spirits too. We refer to any
1: non-human spirit as an angel. But as St. Augustine points out, angel is the name of their job. The word angel means messenger, while spirit is the name of what they are. So all angels or messengers are spirits, and the Bible uses language that associates angels with
0: aspects of the world. In Revelation chapter 7, we read, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. So with an angel on each of the four corners, you'd
1: have a north angel, an east angel, a south angel, and a west angel, since these angels are restraining the four winds from blowing you'd thus also have an angel of the north wind, an angel of the east wind, an angel of the south wind, and an angel of the west wind. Now, we don't need to take the idea of earth having four corners literally. Uh, John's point is that God has angels in providential care of the whole earth, and here that's pictured as there being four angels representing the four cardinal directions of the earth. But if the Bible can use such language, it's obviously not contrary to the faith. So, if Black Elk saw spirits lesser than God, or angels as we would call them, associated with the four directions, that's scarcely contrary to the faith because the Bible does the same thing. Furthermore, his vision during the ghost dance was overtly Christian. Remember, the ghost dance movement didn't reject Christianity. It may have been confused about it, but it also honored it. The ghost dance prophet Wovoka prophesied that Jesus would be returning soon, although he apparently thought it would be by reincarnation. The ghost dancers were expecting the return of a Wanakia, or savior, and many ghost dancers were Christian. Michael Steltenkamp writes that the Lakota ghost dancers believed
0: that the Son of God would return again, but only for Indian people. Adherents maintained that God's Son knew that Indian people would treat him in a manner he deserved and not kill him as the whites had done many years earlier. Black Elk's generation wanted a return of the old ways. While they did desire this return, it would occur by means of a theology that was itself changing with the times. Wounded Knee survivor Joseph Blackhair even said that Ghost Dance leader Chief Bigfoot's people nearly all belonged to some church. They thought of themselves as a kind of chosen people to whom the Son of God would soon come. And the risen
1: Christ is who Black Elk saw in his vision during the ghost dance.
4: Once more, I saw the sacred tree all full of leaves and blooming. Against the tree was a man... I started him and could not tell what people he came from. He was not Washiju, and he was not Indian. While I was staring hard at him, his body began to change and became very beautiful with all colors of light, and around him there was light.
5: He spoke like singing. All earthly beings and growing things belong to me. Your father, the great spirit, has said this. And you too
2: must say this his trance was of a Wañikié with wounds in his hands
4: he sees this figure calling all people to the flowering tree of wakantanka that is the resurrected jesus He told Neinhardt, I saw the Son of
2: God. He really saw Christ, I think, as somebody coming to save his people and save all people too. But the point was, his people was what he was really devoted to.
1: And there's more to this vision than this brief clip records. To understand this, you need to know that Lakota referred to humans as two legs in contrast to land animals, which were four legs. We're about to hear about a two-legged chief which in context would be the leader, the chief, of all men, all two legs. Stelten
0: Camp writes that during the vision, Black Elk met twelve men who assured him that he also would meet the two-legged chief. At the center of a circled village, he saw the tree of his boyhood vision in full bloom, and against this tree he saw a man standing with outstretched arms. This figure addressed Black Elk, saying, All earthly beings that grow belong to me. My father has said this. You must say this. According to Black Elk, the figure was a nice-looking man. All around him there was light, he said. It seemed as though there were wounds in the palms of his hands. Hence, the twelve men were the disciples or followers of the two-legged chief, the Christ. As Christian doctrine taught, this son of the father was given power over all earthly beings. Black Elk's vision was of a crucified Wanakie, the man standing against a tree with arms outstretched and wounds in his hands. However, this Savior was now in a glorified state, that is, light surrounded him and his body changed into all colors and was very beautiful. Damali suggested this vision paralleled the transfiguration story of the Synoptic Gospels, in which the Christ's face shone radiantly and his clothing gleamed white. So,
1: yeah, twelve apostles, man against a tree with outstretched arms and wounds in his palms. He's the two-legged chief or the leader of all men. The whole world belongs to him, and he's the son of Wakantanka or the son of God. This is a vision of the resurrected Christ. Black Elk didn't consider himself to be a Christian in the traditional sense at this time, just before the Battle of Wounded Knee, but he was clearly open to Christianity. And Black Elk had no problem marrying the Catholic Katie Warbonnet and having his three sons baptized as Catholics. Unfortunately, after nine years of marriage, Katie passed away in 1901, leaving Black Elk as a single parent father with three Catholic sons and him being a medicine man. How did this story play out? We're not 100% certain of all the details because we have different accounts. One of Black Elk's lifelong friends was a man named Kill's Enemy. We mentioned him last episode when we talked about how Kill's Enemy served as Black Elk's assistant in performing the weepy ritual, which involved a certain amount of deception. But Kill's Enemy became a practicing Catholic, and he encouraged Black Elk to stop performing the weepy ritual, which Black Elk did because of the deception it involved. Still, Black Elk served as a medicine man, and in November of 1904, he was summoned to provide his services for a sick boy. One of the figures in the following story was Father Joseph Lindebner, who was rather short, so he was nicknamed Atepthechela, or Short Father. According to what Black Elk later
0: told his daughter, Lucy Looks Twice, He walked over there carrying his medicine. At that time, they walked those long trails if they didn't have a horse. When he got there, he found the sick boy lying in a tent, so right away he prepared to doctor him. My father was really singing away, beating his drum, when along came one of the black robes, Father Lindebner, a tepthae chela. Father Lindebner had already baptized the boy and had come to give him the last rites. He took whatever my father had prepared and threw it all into the stove. Then he took my father by the neck and said, Satan, get out! Atepte Chelach then administered the boy communion and the last rites. He also cleaned up the tent and prayed with the boy. He came out and saw my father sitting there looking downhearted and lonely, as though he lost all his powers. Next thing Father Lindebner said was, Come on and get in the buggy with me. My father was willing to go along, so he got in, and the two of them went back to Holy Rosary Mission. Atepte Chela told the Jesuit brothers to clean him up, give him some clothes, underwear, shirt, suit, tie, shoes, and a hat to wear. They fed him and gave him a bed to sleep in. My father never talked about that incident, but he felt it was our Lord that appointed or selected him to do the work of the black robes. He wasn't bitter at all. He stated Holy Rosary, the Catholic mission, two weeks preparing for baptism he gladly accepted the faith on December 6th, 1904. After he became a convert and started working for the missionaries, he put all his medicine practice away. He never took it up again.
1: Now, this is a family story that we aren't hearing firsthand, so some of the details may not be accurate. But Black Elk was baptized as a Catholic on December 6th, 1904. And because December 6th was the feast of St. Nicholas of Myra, that's the St. Nicholas, who is the inspiration of Santa Claus, Black Elk took the baptismal name Nicholas, and he was thereafter known as Nicholas Black Elk, although many people simply called him Nick. The next year, in 1905, he remarried, this time to a woman named Anna Brinks White Horses. Like Black Elk, she had been widowed, and she had two daughters named Agatha and Mary Waterman. Two years after their marriage, in 1907, Nick and Anna had a daughter together. Her name was Lucy lux twice. She was the longest surviving child of Black Elk, passing on in 1978, so she was the principal source about Black Elk's life once the reappraisals of what Nyhart and Brown had said began.
0: If, as Lucy lux twice said, Nicholas Black Elk gave up his practice as a medicine man, did he do anything in its place? Yes, he became a Catholic catechist. Now, we have many catechists
1: in the Catholic Church, but in Black Oaks' day, they did even more than catechists typically do today. Now, catechists frequently just provide basic instruction in the faith to people. But back then, they did a lot of other things, like preaching, leading prayer services, praying over sick people, and baptizing people. This was partly due to the fact that lots of places were hard to reach and could not be visited by priests regularly. In the 1960s, the Second Vatican Council restored the permanent diaconate. And in America today, a lot of the duties old style catechists would do would be assigned to deacons. But at the time, catechists functioned a lot like deacons before the permanent diaconate was restored. And so Black Elk's duties were rather extensive. What really sustained the churches in those days wasn't the priests coming really
2: so much, it was the catechists. There was a catechist in each of those churches. And that's what Blackout became. He was a very dedicated catechist,
6: and you see photographs, for example. He's out gathering wood so
2: that you can heat the church in the wintertime. They couldn't do the formal sacraments like Eucharist, they would wait for the priest to come to do a marriage. But other than that, they were the preacher on, on site.
6: Travel could be hazardous. Your horse and wagon could get stuck in a mud hole. There was no infrastructure as people know it today.
4: A man named Ben Marrowbone was one of the last catechists and he talked about what traveling with the priest would entail. They would go in a horse and buggy kind of transportation to outlying districts. They would have mass at people's houses. The people would put them up on a mattress for overnight stay. When the priest wasn't around Black Elk, as catechist at one of the reservation communities, would hold services. Morning, noon, or night, he would go to somebody's house to pray with them.
7: He was out on horse and wagon in the middle of blizzard trying to get to people that were sick.
4: A man really, really committed to this 24-hour-a-day
1: ministry of vocation. Of course, one of Black Elk's principal duties was teaching the faith, but there was a challenge in this regard because many people did not read. So, the Jesuits had developed a special kind of catechism to teach the faith.
6: We follow this red road. We teach others about it.
3: One of the primary catechetical tools Nicholas used in his ministry was the Two Roads Catechism.
4: Because the people can't read English or read Lakota in those early contact times, the missionaries had these long picture catechisms. The one used by Jesuits among the Lakota was called the Two Roads Map. And there were all kinds of colorful depictions on this chart, various significant Old Testament stories going up. It was like people walking this black road. Once the birth of Jesus takes place, that black road continues to be a red road. The Red Road leads to eternal life at the top with angels and a grandfatherly god. Black Elk used this Two Roads map for 30 years. (laughs) It taught many, many generations of kids and older people what Christians call salvation history. Yeah, Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, New Testament, Christian scriptures. He says, I saw my vocation as leading my people from the black road to the red road. He saw his vocation as leading his people from the pre Christian era into the Christian era.
1: Now, you may remember from the last episode that in his boyhood vision, Black Elk had seen two roads, a red one, and a black one. Michael Camp, who I should point out became a Jesuit priest after he met Lucy Looks twice, so he's now
0: Father Michael Steltenkamp, explains that part of the vision. Black Elk was then shown a good and sacred red road that ran from north to south. From it, he was assured he would receive good things. He was also shown a black road of fear that ran from east to west. From it, he would get the power to destroy.
1: Now, this imagery of a sacred red road and a destructive black road came back into Nicholas Black Elk's life in the form of the Two Roads Catechism. Only instead of intersecting, the black road led up to the time of Christ, and the red road began with Christ and led to God. Black Elk thus threw himself into his work as a catechist, and there are some great stories about this period in his life. A humorous one is related by Father Henry Westrup, whose Lakota name, was Little Owl. Uh, He recalls what happened when he and Nicholas Black Elk were heading to the house of another catechist, a man named Silas Fills the Pipe, after having baptized a couple of people.
0: Once, after having returned from what he called a scalping tour, we had baptized a couple, we were drawing close to the house of Silas Fills the Pipe, another catechist. Little Owl, my Indian name, he said, let us sing the war song, the song of victory and so we ended it with a few whoops that brought Silas to the door of his cabin. I thought the way you sang that, you'd killed some white people, he said. Yes, replied Black Elk. We have taken the scalps of a few devils. So humor was
1: an essential part of Black Elk's character. He was quite a funny guy, and there are witty remarks that come through even in books like Black Elk Speaks.
0: Didn't Black Elk have a kind of official role as a sort of Lakota comedian? Yes,
1: in addition to becoming a medicine man when he was a young man, he also became what was known as a hayoka. The term hayoka is often translated clown, and it did involve humor, but it also had a ritual aspect, and you had to go through an elaborate initiation ceremony to become a hayoka. One of the aspects of the role was doing the
0: opposite of what was expected. Father Steltenkamp explains, for example, one might complain of how cold it is on a hot summer day, and then dress in winter clothing, or greet someone by saying goodbye, and vice versa.
1: Based on that, I'd be a little tempted to translate the term Heyoka as Bizarro, since that's exactly the way Bizarro characters act in the Superman comics. You know, saying goodbye instead of hello, and so forth, and me hate you instead of I love you. Black Elk and his friend Kill's enemy became Hayokas at the same time, and they did a lot of clowning around together. This actually may have gotten Black Elk into trouble at one point, although the details of the incident aren't clear. Father Steltenkamp records a story told by Lucy Looks
0: Twice. She said that her father and Kill's enemy were playing the role of Hayokas, and Black Elk suggested they see how far a bullet would go down into the ground. When they smashed the loaded shell into the earth, it propelled debris upward into Black Elk's eye, and his vision was never the same again. There are other
1: accounts of what happened, but they all involved an accident with gunpowder, and people really did used to clown around with gunpowder in the old days, which is terrible firearm safety, so never do this kind of thing. My father's father, who we knew in the family as Pawpaw, Uh, once told me a story when we visited his boyhood home in Missouri about a prank that he had helped play on one of his brothers when they were young. I'm I'm guessing this would have been around the 1920s. One of his older brothers had gotten old enough to smoke tobacco, and he had a curved pipe that he was very proud of. So Papa and the other brothers took gunpowder and put it in the pipe. Then they covered it up with tobacco so the older brother couldn't see it and when he lit his pipe, bang, it went off in his face, which they thought was hilarious. Though, as a gun safety nut, I think that's insane. In any event, times were rougher a century ago than they are now. People did play jokes with gunpowder, and Nicholas Black Elk did suffer some kind of gunpowder injury that left him vision impaired. On other occasions, though, acting like a hayoka was just fun silliness. Father Steltenkamp reports.
0: On another occasion, after they became Hayokas, Kill's enemy and Black Elk approached a small puddle and acted as if it were a raging river. One jumped into the puddle and pretended to drown, so the other dove in to save him. Both men proceeded to splash around in the mud as if fighting a strong current. A typical Hayoka stunt, their action provoked fits of laughter from onlookers.
1: Black Elk also owned 3 horses named Baloney, Brownie, and Button. There's even a picture of him riding Baloney and there's a funny story about this horse.
4: I remember a story of Black Elk with his horse Baloney. He was at the store one day and Baloney was waiting for him. And Lucy said, as you know, my father spoke quite a lot in a long time. And Baloney apparently got tired of waiting for him and walked home and left my father there at the store. And I chuckled at that. I thought, well, that was humorous. But the end of the story was that Lucy said, so the next time my father was at the store with Baloney, he left Baloney there and walked home. And I thought,
1: that's Black Elk. That's his hayoka. Uh, that's his clowning around. And throughout his later life, Black Elk displayed a sense of humor. He also returned to acting as a showman late in life. Uh, Buffalo Bill's Wild West had gone out of business in 1913. But in 1927, Black Elk reportedly created a show known as the Duhamel Sioux Indian Pageant. Like Buffalo Bill's show, it entertained the public tourists in this case, only it focused specifically on the Lakota. And in the show, Black Elk played the part of a medicine man.
4: Back into the 1930s and 40s, there was one very special thing that took place, and that was called the Duhamel Pageant. The New pageant included the old timers setting up a Lakota camp and reenacting the old ways. And this brought all kinds of tourists to see Black Elk and others reenact what life was like in the 1800s. This is the heyday of Western movies, cowboys and Indians, and people wanted to go and see what Indians were like. Well, the Lakota at that time, they looked forward to that too. Go up into the Black Hills, set up camp, and it was just a wonderful time to get away. And yeah, he played the role of that because he was recognized as a holy man, as a religious man. Who else would you get to do that role? And his grandson, George Looks Twice, would play the role of a little boy he'd be doctoring.
1: So the Duhamel Sioux Indian pageant was one of the things that Black Oak did alongside his work as a catechist
0: in his later years. Last episode, we mentioned that he passed on in August of 1950. Was there anything significant that happened at this time?
1: At least at some point in his life, Black Elk believed that people who were dying could sometimes receive glimpses of the future, and there are various deathbed phenomena that have been studied by parapsychologists, and not just the near-death experiences that we talked about back in episode 27, but things including visions of departed loved ones and angels, as we'll talk about in future episodes. In Black Elk's case, it seems that he did get glimpses of the future, which he related to his daughter Lucy.
0: Stelton Camp reports. Awaiting death, he had given her the assurance that his little angels would be his helpers or guides. They would shepherd him down the spirit trail that would lead to heaven. Lucy said that by guides, he had meant the dying babies he baptized when he worked as a catechist. Black Elk's pastoral experience and involvement over many years with infant baptisms gave him a special affection for the little ones. He told Brown that it was a sacred experience to look into the eyes of newborns. They had just come from Wakantanka, and their eyes could still reflect what they had seen. Similarly, he said elders should be reverenced, for their eyes would soon see again their Creator. With the babies just coming from Wakantanka and the aged about to return, he considered both to be special manifestations of the sacred.
1: Black Oak also said that God would do something in the sky as a sign that he was on his way to heaven, and the day after he died, While people were attending his wake, something did happen in the sky. He had predicted that God was going to do something special when he died.
4: Lucy claims that her father said, You will know that everything is okay with me by God sending a sign if something happens in the sky when i die you'll know i'm okay the
2: night of the wake, the day after his death there was a northern lights event that came so far south much further south we don't usually see the northern lights here and the whole sky was just all
4: brilliant i contacted a astronomy magazine and sure enough there were reports from toronto through the states out into the plains of uh the northern lights bill sear jesuit brother gave a rather eloquent description of what took place in the sky
5: we came back from the weight the sky was lit up and everything was illumined all the way around there were streaks of light and flashes and it seemed like there were fireworks in between it, it had a very forceful effect on me There's something i never forget
2: So that was seen by many people as a sign from God that this holy man was
1: on his way through the Milky Way home into the arms of God. Another thing that I find less impressive, though still notable, also happened at his funeral.
5: I was about eight years old when the family had heard that old man Black Elk had died. And so some of the women in the household and my grandmother uh, proceeded to make the, the obligatory crepe paper flowers.
0: The
5: day of the funeral, it was raining. And it was so wet and muddy that everybody walked, but our feet were growing bigger and bigger because the gumbo was sticking to it. Requiem eternum dona e domine, et lux perpetua luceare. And just as the, the ritual began, the sky and the sun came out and it seemed to only be happening in that place where we were at the cemetery and I was astonished and then the sky started to close and it started raining again and so we, we just took our little flowers and Ropes into the grave, and so we just put our flowers there. Later, we were talking about the sun coming out, and uh, Grandma said, "Yeah, that that happens." But then we know that they've gone home, you know. And she didn't seem to be terribly astonished by it, but I thought it was a miracle.
0: Now taking the story up through Nicholas Black Elk's death a second time, this time from a Christian perspective, is there anything else we should say before we move to the faith and reason perspectives? Yes,
1: in the year 2012, Pope Benedict XVI canonized Saint Kateri Tekakwitha, the first saint of Mohawk Iroquois descent. She's sometimes described as the first Native American saint, but that isn't actually true. There were already Native American saints from Latin America, like St. Juan Diego of Mexico, who is a Chichimec. But at St. Kateri's canonization ceremony, something interesting happened. A man named Mark Thiel, an archivist with special knowledge of black elk, met someone significant.
6: His name was George Looks Twice. George Looks Twice
3: is a grandson of Nicholas Black Elk. In 2012, thousands of pilgrims gathered in Rome, to celebrate the canonization of Kateri Tekakwitha, the first Native American woman to be named a saint of the Catholic Church.
6: We got our seats early, down near the center, near the obelisk. Here comes an elderly Native gentleman, and he came and sat down next to us he starts mentioning a photograph of his grandfather teaching his mother how to pray the rosary. And instantly, I knew that he had to be a grandson of Black Elk. I thought, wait a minute, this is crazy. Here we are halfway around the world, and here is someone from the Pine Ridge Reservation, a grandson of Black Elk, and he's speaking to an archivist who has substantial documentation about his grandfather.
3: During that mass of the canonization, he turned to
6: Mark and said,
3: why couldn't this happen to my grandfather?
6: It was at that instant that he had first conceived the idea, and I was the first person in the world to hear this. Absolutely amazing.
3: George and some of the other members of the family presented a formal petition to me to open the cause for canonization um, for Nicholas Blackwell.
1: There was unanimous support to move the cause forward. So, the Diocese of Rapid City, South Dakota opened the cause for the canonization of Nicholas Blackwell. He may one day be a saint of the church. As part of their diocesan education efforts about this, project, they produced a documentary called Walking the Good Red Road, which is one of the key sources we've been drawing on. We'll have a link to where you can watch the whole video for yourself.
0: So before we get to our theories and faith and reason perspective, I do want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Michelle R., John H., Mike M., Laura R., and Mary Ellen R., their generous tax-deductible donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest, and you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fairvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides Of Michigan Convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com. F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. And by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at delivercontacts.com. So, Jimmy, what theories are there about Nicholas Black Elk that we need to consider?
1: From the reason perspective, we need to look at the question of how sincere he was in his Christian faith, because that's been challenged. Then, from the faith perspective, we need to consider the status of his canonization, including the violence he committed before his conversion, his use of Lakota rites after
0: conversion, and the character of the visions he received. Okay, so what can we say about Nicholas Black Elk from the reason perspective? Why did you want to consider the issue of his sincerity in the faith from the reason rather than the faith perspective? Because it
1: isn't a teaching of the faith that someone was or wasn't sincere. That's a matter of reason, must decide. This just isn't a matter of faith. You can be a good Christian and think Black Elk was sincere, and you can be a good Christian and think he was insincere. This is a matter to be sorted out by looking at the historical evidence. How
0: did you come across this issue?
1: When I started re- researching this pair of episodes, I looked at Wikipedia's page on Nicholas Black Elk and quickly discovered that his sincerity in the faith had been challenged, so I knew i need to sort through the issue in doing my research. Despite the ac- accuracy issues with Wikipedia, it is a prominent source, and listeners would run across this page, so I needed to discuss this. And I want to make it clear that in this regard, you know, I don't have a dog in the fight. I have not historically had a devotion to Nicholas Black Elk. In fact, I really didn't know that much about him before I started researching this pair of episodes. So I came at this with an open mind. For me, the issue of whether or not he was sincere is a historical mystery. Nicholas Black Elk is a historical figure, and history might indicate that he was sincere or it might indicate that he was not sincere. So This needed to be sorted out.
0: If he presented himself as a Catholic, if he abandoned his work as a respected medicine man and lived as a Catholic for 46 years, from 1904 to 1950, that would be prima facie evidence that he was sincere. Why has this idea been challenged? Because of what Black Elk
1: came to represent as a result of the books Black Elk Speaks and The Sacred Pipe those books deliberately sought to downplay the Christian aspects of his life. Both Neihardt and Brown wanted to use Black Elk as a symbol of Lakota traditionalism. In fact, as Steltenkamp reports, by writing The Sacred Pipe, Joseph Epps Brown wanted to inspire the creation of a new Lakota religious
0: brotherhood that he referred to as the Order of the Pipe. Brown had been critical of the Catholic Church's recruitment of catechists, He hoped that by establishing the Order of the Pipe, he would motivate Lakota descendants to renew traditional rites. The new generation could fill the religious void that would be left when Christian elders, like Black Elk, died. This was at least the position Brown initially espoused when working with the Holy Man. Brown altered this position over the years and came to share Lucy's opinion that people were drawing erroneous conclusions about her father and the senior generation. He knew that Black Elk's Christianity was a significant part of his identity, and that this was difficult for some people to accept. Brown wrote, I have felt it improper that this phase of his life was never presented either by Neihart or indeed by myself. I suppose somehow it was thought this Christian participation compromised his Indianness. But I do not see it this way, and think it time that the record was set straight. So, Brown eventually came around on
1: properly recognizing Black Elk's Christianity. But by that point, the damage had been done. Black Elk Speaks and the Sacred Pipe were out there, and they inspired all kinds of New Agers, ecologists, and activists with their image of Black Elk as a Lakota traditionalist. When the reassessment books started to be written, it clashed with the cherished image that these people had of him. They didn't want to hear that he served for more than four decades as a Catholic catechist, and they didn't want him to be a sincere Christian.
0: What did they propose as alternate theories?
1: Principally, there were two. Uh, First, maybe he was never sincere. Maybe he became Catholic so that he could advance in society because it was convenient. In this way, he could be portrayed as a sneaky rebel who tricked his white Christian oppressors into thinking he was sincere so that he could have a more comfortable life when really he wasn't sincere. The second theory was that even if he had been sincere at one time, maybe he abandoned his Christianity by the end of his life and went back to traditional Lakota practices,
0: and maybe both of these theories could be held. Given the evidence I already cited for his sincerity, you'd need evidence to support those theories. Do you have any quotations from Black Elk that would support them? There are two proposed quotations, and they both come
1: from the same source, Hilda Nyhart. She was the daughter of John Nyhart, and she was 14 years old when she accompanied her father to meet Black Elk in 1931. In an interview found in Clyde Holler's book, The Black Elk Reader, Hilda Nyhart says this
7: Let me recall a conversation that John Nyhart and Black Elk had. It was during a break in the telling of the Great Vision, and the two were visiting. My father said, Black Elk, when you have such a very beautiful religion, why are you a member of a white church? Black Elk thought for a moment, then replied, because my children have to live in this world.
1: So that could make it sound like Black Elk adopted the Christian faith to to provide his children with an easier life. And what's the second quotation that comes from her? It's found in her 1995 book, Black Elk and Flaming Rainbow. Flaming Rainbow was her father's Indian name, and the book is her memories of the two weeks that she, her father, and her sister spent with Black Elk in 1931. Toward the end of the book, we find this passage, which describes a much more recent event involving Black Elk's daughter, Lucy Looks Twice.
7: While Lucy was in Columbia, a warm and trusting closeness developed between us and Lucy told me about the deaths of her father and her brother, Ben. She said that in 1950, Black Elk was very ill and members of the family gathered around him in his Manderson, South Dakota home. The old man did not live long, but before he passed away, Lucy reveals Black Elk told them, the only thing I really believe is the pipe religion. The term pipe religion was one I had never heard before But Lucy's meaning was clear.
1: So according to this account from Hilda, Lucy Looks Twice told her that shortly before he died, Black Elk said, the only thing I really believe is the pipe religion, an apparent reference to traditional Lakota practices in contrast to Christianity. Hilda went on to say, Just why Lucy revealed those things to me, I did not know, nor
7: did I wonder about it at the time. Certainly what she said was not in response to any inquiry from me. I have recently learned that in 1973 or thereabouts, Lucy had talked to a writer about Black Elk's work as a Catholic catechist, and a book has now appeared based on those communications. Lucy didn't mention to me that she had ever spoken to anyone about her father's life. Now, having learned about her conversations with the author, and because Lucy placed noticeable emphasis on what she told me, I think that the statements she had made were probably disturbing to her after she had finally, so late in life, read Black Elk Speaks. It is apparent that becoming aware of her native beliefs from that book held great meaning for her. In fact, as she had told her audience at Stevens College, it changed her life. During her last years, Lucy carried her own sacred pipe with her. She had become a pipe carrier. Because she knew it would be important to me, I believe she felt I should know what her father had revealed to his family before he died. I am happy that Lucy wanted me to know. I trust in what she told me. Isn't it always important that the truth be known?
1: Okay, so those are the only quotations we have attributed to Black Elk that would indicate insincerity on his part.
0: The first one was the statement that he became Catholic because my children have to live in this world. And the second was, the only thing I really believe in is the pipe religion. If that's the case, For him being insincere, how should we evaluate these quotations? One thing I'd point out
1: is that the first quotation about his children is based on Hilda Neihart's memories of a conversation that took place in 1931. She was only 14 years old at the time, and she didn't make this claim until she was interviewed for the Black Elk Reader, which came out in the year 2000 when she was 84 years old, 70 years after the alleged conversation occurred. So, how clear were her memories of a conversation that she heard as a girl 70 years earlier? Setting that matter aside, though, a first step in evaluation is considering what the statements may mean. They may sound like indicators of insincerity, but we always need to consider whether they might have another meaning or whether they may have occurred in a context that would put them in a different light. This step of asking, what could this mean? is a basic first step in the exegesis or interpretation of any statement. Can you see other possible meanings for these two statements? When it comes to the first statement, I can't. The fact that Black Elk had a sense of humor and was a Hayoka could be playing a role here. This is something that may not be as clear if you haven't studied Black Elk, but after reading a bunch about him, I've got some familiarity with his sense of humor and he would often make little dry humorous remarks in his conversations with Neihardt and Brown. Sometimes these were subtle enough that Neihardt and Brown may not have noticed that he was joking, but they're still there. For example, uh, once Black Elk was talking about how he almost died in Europe and the family he was staying with arranged to get a casket for him. Then, as a kind of final zinger, he said effectively, you know, it might have been better if I died right then, because I'd have gotten a better casket than what I'll have in Pine Ridge. And that was clearly a joke. Um, on another occasion, Black Elk was telling Nyhart about a vision he saw of a land filled with buffalo. And he added, you know, I was hungry and they should have fed me then, meaning in the vision, as if visionary food would cure his hunger. So I can easily see a man that had that kind of sense of humor upon being asked to say why he became Catholic might say something like, well, my children have to live in this world just as a joke. And since jokes frequently have an element of truth in them, he may have only been partially joking, or perhaps he was answering the question totally seriously. When he became a Catholic, He was a single father with Catholic sons. Uh, He was expected to keep raising them Catholic. The spirit of Katie Warbonnet would have expected him to keep raising them Catholic as he'd promised her. In fact, promising to raise the kids Catholic was one of the things you had to do if you wanted to marry a Catholic at the time. So he'd made a commitment to raise them Catholic even though he wasn't Christian. And maybe he did start thinking about the practical benefits of being Catholic in the world that his children would live in. And that got him to thinking about his own faith and the example that as a father, he needed to set for his children, especially now that their mother was dead and he ended up becoming a Catholic and a sincere one, even though it was practical considerations that started him down that path. I mean, or just think about comparisons. I know there are lots of people whose. Conversions, whether to Catholicism or Protestantism or anything else, are initially prompted by practical considerations. But that doesn't mean their resulting beliefs aren't sincere. I mean, someone might tell you, well, I became a Catholic because there was this really cute girl that I was getting serious about, and there was no way she was going to marry me if I didn't convert. Or a woman might say, there was this awesome Presbyterian guy I was really into, so I started going to his church to spend more time with him. And just because it was practical considerations that started people like that on their journeys, that didn't mean they aren't sincere in the beliefs they came to adopt. The, the You could become a sincere Catholic or sincere Presbyterian or sincere anything else, even if it was a cute person of the opposite sex that led you to start investigating, or if your children were baptized Catholics and now you needed to raise them, yeah, that could start you down a road where you become a sincere Catholic. So in the same way, Black Elk could have started thinking about becoming Catholic to help his children, but that doesn't mean he wasn't sincere in what he came to believe. So I don't think that the first quote is good evidence of insincerity because it's also consistent with him
0: being sincere in his faith. What about the second quotation that the only thing he really believed was the pipe religion? Could that be taken other ways? I'm sure I could come
1: up with an alternative meaning, but no natural interpretations occur to me off the top of my head, and I don't want to f- go into forced unnatural reading, so I'll set that issue of evaluating the phrase aside. On the other hand, if the quotation is genuine, it could just be an expression of temporary doubt. Uh, many people have struggles with their beliefs at times, regardless of what those beliefs are. Often they get through these patches and reaffirm their beliefs, but even if the quotation is real, it can't be read as evidence, meaning, my whole Christian life has been a lie, because it's equally consistent with it just being doubts that he experienced at a certain phase of life. However, I'll set that issue of interpretation aside also. Instead, I'd like to ask a second question that always needs to be considered in situations like this. How reliable is the source of the quotations? Both of them come from the same person. We don't have confirmation from either John Nyhart or Lucy Looks Twice, because both of them were dead at the time, so we can't check with them. It all comes down to Hilda Nyhart's word. And dramatic, unverifiable quotations that are made only after the alleged witnesses of the quotations are safely dead are always suspicious. Further, if Black Elk so freely confessed his insincerity to other people, why don't we have additional people reporting similar statements? Why is it only Hilda Neihard? That also is suspicious.
0: Do we have additional reason to suspect Hilda Nyhart of being an unreliable source? Hilda Nyhart was a big defender
1: of her father. In fact, she was the chairman of the board of the John G. Nyhart Foundation. So she was heavily invested in her father's memory. And she was not happy when scholars began questioning her father's work, saying that Blackout Speaks contains inaccuracies and that her father produced a false slanted picture of Black Elk. She also attacked her father's critics. For example, you'll recall that she said,
7: I recently learned that in 1973 or thereabouts, Lucy had talked to a writer about Black Elk's work as a Catholic catechist, and a book has now appeared based on those communications. Lucy didn't mention to me that she had ever spoken to anyone about her father's life. Now having learned about her conversations with the author, And because Lucy placed noticeable emphasis on what she told me, I think that the statements she had made were probably disturbing to her after she had finally, so late in life, read Black
1: Elk Speaks. Now, Hilda Nyhart is being cagey here. She doesn't name the author or the book that she's discussing, but notice how she's minimizing it. A writer talked to Lucy in 1973 or thereabouts. and a book has now appeared based on those communications. But Hilda conjectures, after reading her father's book, Lucy was disturbed to learn the truth about her father, and that's probably why she confided in Hilda about her father's lack of Christian faith. Because of how secretive she's being about who this writer was who apparently Only spoke to Lucy in a single year around 1973. She's not giving the readers much to work with, but she is, in fact, speaking about Father Michael Steltenkamp and his book Black Elk Holy Man of the Oglala, which came out in the 1990s and is based on his PhD dissertation in anthropology. But Father Steltenkamp was much more than just a writer who spoke to Lucy in a single year, he met her in his early years of teaching at Red Cloud Indian School.
4: I thought I'd go out and have a smoke and found a bench where one of the Lakota elders was sitting. And I sat next to her, introduced myself, and I asked her if she had gone to school there. And she said, yes, I did. And so did my brother, Ben. And so I said, was Ben Black Elk your brother? Yes. Was old Black Elk Nick your father? he was my dad. And that just really blew me off my feet because I I thought with Ben's passing, he had died just months earlier, that uh, there were no more children of black elk. And so here I was sitting next to his daughter, Lucy, black elk looks twice. And that's when I learned about this whole other part of his life. And that was his life as a catechist, And that's what she expounded upon over the course of what became a five-year relationship until she died.
1: So Father Camp knew Lucy Looks Twice for five years, from 1973 until her death in 1978. She wanted him to tell the story of her father's life as a catechist, and they became quite close.
4: I was ordained a deacon on the Pine Ridge Reservation. As a gift for me, she had this medallion made by her daughter, and she said, "This is my father's vision, and it's a vision of Jesus's cross at the center of the nation, the seven teepees of the Lakota, the seven branches of the, the Lakota
1: people." And uh, I've cherished this this medallion. The two were so close that Lucy began referring to Father Steltenkamp as Takosha, which means grandchild. So he was a surrogate grandchild to her. And it was Lucy twice who emphasized Black Elk's Christian faith. In private correspondence with me, Father Steltenkamp wrote,
0: People might think that because I'm a Jesuit priest, I wanted to create a biography that passed him off as a devout Catholic. I eventually learned from his daughter and friends, before I was ordained, that he was, in fact, a devout Catholic catechist. But before heading to Pine Ridge as a high school teacher, I wanted to learn about his practice of traditional Lakota religious practices. I didn't want to get all this information about his piety as a Catholic. His daughter took me in that direction because she was long upset at his being made out to be an old-time medicine man. My first book, which was a condensation of my PhD dissertation in anthropology, rattled Hilda Nyhart. She went after me in a couple of books she published. My material raised concern about her father's portrait of the man. In an essay he contributed to the Black Elk Reader, Father Steltenkamp responds to Hilda's claims by saying, Hilda Nyhart published Black Elk and Flaming Rainbow, a book largely based on recollections of her father's visit with Black Elk. This volume makes assertions that need the corrective offered here.
1: The first of the corrections concerns the portrait that Hilda tried to paint of Lucy. You'll recall that she said, During her last years, Lucy carried her own sacred pipe
7: with her. She had become a pipe carrier.
1: Father Steltenkamp responds
0: in his essay by stating, Apart from misidentifying me as an author who visited Lucy in 1973, Hilda stated that the holy man's daughter became a pipe carrier, a designation that gained currency in the 1980s, referring to Indians who associated themselves with traditional ways and that she regretted telling me the story of Black Elk's life as a catechist. She further claimed that Lucy forsook her lifelong practice of Catholicism, and that she quit her membership in what Hilda Nyhart, tellingly classifies as a white church. She rhetorically concluded this section of her book with the puzzling question, isn't it always important that the truth be known? Because the book Flaming Rainbow itself presents a seriously misleading description of Lucy, I was not at all sure as to what truth Hilda Nyhart was alluding. In addition to this, and contrary to what her book reports, I was not an author who only visited Lucy in 1973. Rather, I was a teacher at the Red Cloud Indian School, and my visits with Lucy were numerous from 1973 until her death five years later. So,
1: Father Stilton Camp corrects what Hilda said about him. Now, he corrects what she said about Lucy and her religious beliefs at the end of her life.
0: In a letter written to me just weeks before she died, Lucy said she prayed that our effort would have success and that her adult children would straighten out their lives and return to the sacraments. She was disappointed that ill health prevented her from attending midnight mass on Christmas Eve because she had especially looked forward to meeting the visiting African priest who was the celebrant. When Hilda Nyhart said that Lucy converted to pipe carrierdom, Upon finally reading Black Elk Speaks, I evaluated Flaming Rainbow as simply an advertisement for John Nyhart's book. I had witnessed Hilda alter Lucy's reality on an earlier occasion. Wanting promotional photographs for the opening of a play based on Black Elk Speaks, Hilda Nyhart staged shots of Lucy Looks twice holding a pipe, not Lucy's because she did not own one, because this would show, again erroneously, that the holy man's daughter carried on the religious tradition reported in John Neihardt's classic. Photographs of Lucy praying with a pipe would confirm the adage that a picture is worth a thousand words. In this instance, however, words were needed to caption the photograph's misrepresentation. Black Elk's elderly daughter had no familiarity with pipe usage, and she needed instruction from others as to how a pipe should be held. Ironically, whatever appreciation Lucy had for the Lakota pipe tradition was partly attributable to me. We had lengthy conversations about various religious practices, and she was surprised that I knew as much as I did about the pipe, never giving it much attention herself. Because of my reverence for the tradition, Lucy had her son make a pipe for me.
1: So by the photographs she took, Hilda had previously conveyed the impression that Lucier was a pipe carrier. When she didn't own a pipe, she didn't even know how to hold a pipe. And she had to be taught how to do that for the photographs. Father Steltenkamp then addresses the issue of
0: Hilda's motives, stating Because my book, Black Elk, Holy Men of the Oglala, fleshed out the previously incomplete life story of Neihart's Black Elk, Hilda Nyhart might have been trying to protect the integrity of her father's text by criticizing mine. However, Holy Man simply confirmed what Damali and others had already addressed. That is, John Nyhart took liberties in portraying Black Elk the way he did. Frank Fools Crow, Black Elk's famous nephew, rendered an even harsher judgment in a biography published before my book, Holy Men. There, he flatly stated, That is not my uncle, when Black Elk Speaks was read to him by writer Thomas Mayles. So, I think we have good reason
1: to be suspicious of Hilda Neihardt's claims. She had an interest in defending her father's work and his portrait of Black Elk as a traditionalist. She went out of her way to minimize Father Steltenkamp and his relationship with Lucy lux twice. Hilda and she alone presented quotations attributed to Black Elk challenging his sincerity in the Christian faith. Other people did not present such quotations. One of the quotations was from a conversation that allegedly took place 70 years earlier when she was 14 years old, and she misrepresented Lucy Looks twice, claiming her to be a pipe carrier when she wasn't, saying that she distanced herself from her Christian faith at the end of her life when actually at the end of her life, she was hoping her children would return to their Catholic practice, and she was disappointed that she was too ill to go to midnight mass on Christmas because she wanted to meet the visiting priest. And when Hilda made these statements for the year 2000 book, Lucy couldn't contradict her because she was conveniently dead, having passed on in 1978. In researching this episode, I called Father Camp and asked him about the pipe religion quotation from Hilden Eihardt. Now, he was very polite about it, but he indicated that he was convinced that the statement did not correspond to reality. And I have to say that I agree. Hilden Eihardt was not a trustworthy source. Do we have other evidence of Black Elk's sincerity in his faith? Loads of it, and we won't go through it all because it would just be beating a dead horse. However, I will note a few points. First, there is evidence that John Neihart deliberately slanted his picture of Black Elk against the man's wishes. We have records that Black Elk wanted to add a final word to Black Elk Speaks, but no such addendum was made. Consequently, after the book came out, Black Elk wrote a statement that explains exactly what he wanted included, but that had been left out of Black Elk Speaks. After Neihardt's book was published,
3: Nicholas signed a letter which read, in part, A white man made a book and told what I had spoken of olden times, but the new times he left out. So I speak again, a last word. In the last 30 years, I am different from what the white man wrote about me. I am a Christian. This letter was signed by Nicholas his daughter Lucy, and Jesuit priest Joseph Zimmerman.
1: Having been burned once by Neihart, Black Elk then made sure that he got to write a foreword to the sacred pipe, and in the foreword he stated,
0: We have been told by the white men, or at least those who are Christian, that God sent to men his Son who would restore order and peace upon the earth. And we have been told that Jesus the Christ was crucified, but that he shall come again at the last judgment, the end of this world or cycle. This I understand and know that it is true. So even though he had just dictated a book about
1: traditional Lakota ceremonies, Black Elk wanted to make sure that he got a statement of his Christian faith right up at the front of the book, so people wouldn't be misled the way they were after reading Black Elk Speaks.
0: That would indicate sincerity at the time these two books came out, but what about at the end of his life? he was known for
1: publicly praying the rosary at the end of his life.
4: John Lone Goose knew Black Elk well. The two of them used to walk from the general store to church every Sunday. That was part of the landscape of Manderson, South Dakota, the last decade of Black Elk's life, seeing these two guys walking to church saying the rosary.
1: Furthermore, on this point, Father Camp writes in The Black Elk
0: Reader, I was told by Black Elk's daughter, his old friend John Lone Goose, his granddaughter Regina, and other Manderson residents that, one, they prayed the rosary with him often, two, toward the end of his life he seemed to pray it by himself constantly because he always had one in hand and was heard saying the prayers, and three, everyone in Manderson knew he said it all the time. His behavior was manifest, and he was known to pray his rosary both silently and aloud. In the last years of his life, there was no social pressure exerted upon the holy man to feign any type of religious behavior, and that's a good point.
1: As an elderly, infirm old man who was actually sometimes bedridden in the years before his death, there was no social pressure on Black to maintain an insincere Catholic act. So the fact he continuously prayed the Rosary as death approached would be a good indication that he really was sincere. Furthermore, in addition to saying the rosary, Black Elk also performed another devotion as he was preparing to die. Father Stelton Camp explains,
0: In his last months, Black Elk, who was about 85 years old, practiced a devotion that had been part of Jesuit tradition since 1675. It was a piety that included reception of communion on the first Friday of nine consecutive months. This was done because the visions of a French nun, Margaret Mary Alacoque, promised that one would not die in disgrace or without a last anointing if one received communion on nine First Fridays. Devotees thought that the practice assured one of finding refuge in the Sacred Heart of Jesus when they died.
1: So Black Elk also did the nine First Fridays devotion to the Sacred Heart
0: to ensure that he had a good death. And Jesuit Father Peter Price was the priest assigned to Manderson when Black Elk requested and received the Sacrament of the Sick for the fourth time. In those final months, he asked Price to say Mass on each first Friday of the month at Ben's home. Lucy recalled that during this period, her father always held a rosary and prayed with it. In addition to admonishing his daughter not to let a day pass without praying for him, Black Elk also told Lucy to attend Mass faithfully. She acknowledged that she complied with his request.
1: And let's give the final word to Lucy herself because we're fortunate enough to have a recording of Lucy speaking about how Black Elk finished his life.
4: He never gave up on his Christian life, his teachings and prayers and everything. He lived up
1: to it. So I'm sorry, but the evidence we have points to Black Elk being a sincere Christian and remaining so until the end of his life. I understand the desire of some to reclaim him as a symbol of traditional Lakota religion, but that's just not where the evidence points.
0: Then let's transition to the faith perspective. What can we say about Nicholas Black Elk's canonization process?
1: It was opened by the Diocese of Rapid City, and the first phase of a canonization cause is what's known as the diocesan phase. It's an investigation that's carried out locally by an individual known as the postulator and once it's under the authority of the local bishop. And once it's complete, the results are sent off to the dicastery for the causes of saints in Rome. The man who was the postulator of the diocesan process was a deacon named Bill White.
4: As a pastor assistant here, you know, I'm I'm doing a similar job that Nicholas Blackout did back then. I mean, I see ordained priests probably more than he did, but, um, you know, I... I do um, a lot of the same duties.
6: In the name of the Father and the
4: Son and the Holy Spirit. I don't have to get the fire going or haul wood or (laughs) anything that I'm sure that he did, you know.
1: In researching this episode, I called Deacon White, and he was very helpful, and he told me that when the diocesan phase was complete, the report they shipped over to Rome was huge. It wasn't just a single written report, it was a huge box of stuff, which is what you'd expect from someone who lived so recently, since there are so many witnesses and records to look at. Deacon White also let me know about Walking the Good Red Road, the documentary about Black Elk, and so I really want to thank him for that. What's the current state of Black Elk's cause? Since Black Elk's cause for canonization has been opened, he now has the title Servant of God. And since the diocesan phase of the cause has been concluded, the matter is now in Rome's hands, where there is a new postulator for the cause over there. The next step would be Black Elk being given the title Venerable. This would happen if the dicastery for the Causes of Saints makes a determination that he lived a life characterized by heroic virtue meaning the theological and cardinal virtues expressed to a heroic decree. Upon making such a determination, they would then recommend this title to the Pope, and if the Pope approves, Black Elk would become a venerable. The step after that would be his being beatified or becoming a blessed. This ordinarily requires a miracle be performed by his intercession, so if they find a miracle and can verify it, the dicastery could make a recommendation to the Pope, and if he approves, black elk would then be beatified and receive the title blessed. The final step is canonization, and for this, a second miracle is ordinarily required. So if they find a second one and can verify it, the dicastery would make the recommendation to the Pope, and if he approves, black elk
0: would then be canonized in Rome and be given the title saint. Let's talk about challenges that there might be for his canonization. Black Elk began as a Lakota warrior, and he talked about how happy he was as a boy after killing and scalping cavalry soldiers at the Little Bighorn. He also reportedly acknowledged killing soldiers and wanting to kill more after Wounded Knee. Would those pose problems for his cause proceeding? Would they stop a decree of heroic virtue from being issued? They shouldn't.
1: And the reason is that they happened before Black Oak was a Christian. You can be the worst sinner in the world, convert, and end up as a saint. I mean, that's what happened to St. Paul, who was positively murderous towards Christians before Jesus appeared to him. And yet, he's one of the greatest saints today. It's what you do after your conversion, not before it, that counts. Having said that, some people in Rome have gotten squeamish on the substance on the subject of violence, and it's resulted in problems for other causes. For example, there is the cause of the Marinole father, Vincent Capadano, popularly known as the Grunt Padre because he served as a chaplain in the U.S. Marine Corps during the Vietnam War. He died in 1967 after using his body to shield a Marine from machine gun fire. But in 2022, a panel of theological advisors asked the dicastery for the causes of saints to suspend Father Capodanno's cause. According to Catholic News Agency, one of the advisors said,
0: With ongoing military actions in the world today, think Ukraine, raising someone from the military for veneration may not be appropriate for our church, one consultant wrote. Which I think is absolutely insane.
1: The church has loads of saints who were involved in wars. War is a tragic historical reality. It's even a necessity in cases of self-defense. And I think the creeping pacifism that exists today, particularly in European church circles, is ridiculous. The idea of not considering a cause for canonization because the person is in the military is, in my opinion, bull excrement. And it shouldn't make a difference in Nicholas Blackelt's case, firstly, because the violence he used was before he was a Christian, and second, because he became a man of peace and a bridge builder between cultures after his conversion. But knowing how crazy some European theological advisors can be, I unfortunately can't rule out that this might be a problem.
0: What about his participation in Lakota religious rites? Would those pose an issue for his sainthood? Again, we have
1: the issue of what he did before his conversion and what he did after. His adherence to traditional Lakota religion prior to his conversion shouldn't make any difference at all, and here I don't think it will. Uh, The theological advisors shouldn't have a problem with that. They should not be so crazy as to hold the pre-conversion religious beliefs and practices of a person against their cause. The question is, what about the practices he engaged in after his conversion? He did reject some Lakota practices. For example, he abandoned the whippy ritual because it involved deception. And we heard from Lucy Looks Twice that he gave up his practice as a medicine man after he became a Catholic. But he did continue to participate in some Lakota practices, such as the sweat lodge purification ceremony.
0: There's even a funny story about that. Father Stilton Camp writes, these activities had remained a part of Black Elk's life as a catechist. Lucy recalled an earlier sweat lodge experience with her father that she did not wish to repeat, but found humorous in retrospect. She said that her father shouted from within the lodge, asking her to open the flap. Unwilling to be involved with the males-only ritual that was taking place, she did not do as he requested until hearing him yell, "'Hurry up, or we'll all burn up in here!'
1: On some occasions, Black Elk also continued the ceremonial use of a pipe, which he viewed as a form of prayer. Rapid City Bishop Robert Griss states, He was just as comfortable praying with his pipe in the Lakota
3: tradition as he was living the sacramental life of the church in the
1: Catholic tradition. So the question that needs to be sorted out is the degree to which these practices are compatible with the Christian faith, just like back in the Chinese rites controversy. One of the things you'll read about if you study liturgy is the concept of enculturation. Enculturation is the process by which expressions of the Christian faith, including the liturgy, are shaped by the culture that they're planted in. This is a process that has been with the church since the very beginning. It's why we aren't all saying the liturgy in Aramaic, the language Jesus would have used at the Last Supper. It's also why philosophical ideas from Greek culture, like the thought of Plato and Aristotle, became prominent as tools for helping express Christian theology. So, whenever a new culture is evangelized, there's an expectation that it will give its own expression to the Christian faith as part of the process of enculturation. As long as that expression doesn't include anything contrary to the Christian faith, that's fine. So, it would be expected for Lakota Catholicism to have its own form of Christian expression. And in Lakota Catholic liturgies, you'll see that happening with, for example, uh, the use of things like the Lakota language, such as wakan, 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 instead of holy, 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 or sanctus, 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 or santo, santo, santo. Or the use of a feather in the process of incensing a person or thing during the liturgy. Since
3: the arrival of the Jesuits and the death of Nicholas Black Elk, Lakota Catholicism has continued to grow and
1: evolve. And may God's grace, peace, and blessing be with each one of you. One thing about Black Elk is that he continued to grow, and if he had lived longer, he probably would be very comfortable in the world of Lakota Catholicism today. The need to walk a red road, a good road, because the search for good character is really the passion of Lakota people. I don't see a problem with any of that. Uh, Lakota is a language like any other, and you can refer to God as Elohim, Elah, Theos, Deus, Got, God, or Wakantanka. And it really doesn't matter whether you spread incense by waving a thoroughfare or waving a feather. The current liturgical documents may not mention the feather option, but it's not contrary to the essence of the faith to use a feather.
0: What about Black Elk's use of distinctly Lakota ceremonies like the sweat lodge or the pipe? I don't know enough about the
1: sweat lodge ceremony or most Lakota ceremonies to be able to comment. Um, When it comes to pipes, I do know something about that because, you know, I happen to be a pipe smoker. Uh, For me, the practice is completely non-religious and non-ceremonial. I smoke for pleasure rather than as part of a ritual. And the same is true of many in Native American groups, some of which put more emphasis on smoking for pleasure and some of whom put more emphasis on the ritual aspect. Black Oak himself had this distinction. Apparently, he would normally smoke cigarettes for pleasure, but he would smoke a pipe when honoring a visitor to his home, and he did view it as a form of prayer. And I can understand that. I can see how smoking a pipe, like using incense or lighting a candle, can be a kind of enacted prayer. If you light a candle for someone in the church, that becomes an act of prayer, while Lighting a candle during a power failure isn't. Similarly, uh, some people burn incense for pleasure, just because they like the smell and it may help them relax. While it also gets used in church, where the ascent of the smoke represents the ascent of prayers before God. Well, as I said before, tobacco is a form of incense, and a pipe is a censer. So even though pipe smoking has no religious significance for me, I can understand how you could make it an enacted prayer, just like you can the act of burning, of lighting a candle or burning incense in church. And there's certainly nothing contrary to the Christian faith here. When it comes to other ceremonies, like I said, I don't know enough to have an opinion. And that's one of the things they'll have to sort out in Rome. The rule should be that unless something actually contradicts the Christian faith, it shouldn't be a problem. And I suspect that there likely won't be a problem over this issue. If anything, it might be violence that would pose a greater challenge in Rome.
0: Let's conclude the faith perspective by talking about Black Elk's visions and other paranormal experiences, like when he had out-of-body experiences when he was ill. What should we make of those? I don't have enough information
1: to form a definite conclusion on those, but they can be handled both in terms of the paranormal and the supernatural. From a parapsychological perspective, it's possible that Black Elk was drawing on some form of natural human abilities that are reportedly responsible for psychic powers. He might have been a natural psychic. On the other hand, there could be a supernatural element here, meaning the involvement of non-human spirits. Those spirits could be angels, demons, or God, and possibly all three since god can speak to anyone and since black elk had visions that progressively led him towards the christian faith including his vision of the resurrected jesus i'm entirely open to the idea that god had a hand in what he saw i can't rule out that there also may have been natural causes at work here black elk did have exposure to christian ideas he already knew about jesus when he had his vision of jesus and For all I know, he may have even seen the Two Roads Catechism as a little boy by the time he saw his vision involving the Good Red Road and the Destructive Black Road. So I can't rule out that his visions had purely natural causes or that his exposure to Christian sources helped shape the genuinely supernatural or paranormal experiences he had. Ultimately, there would be no way to know all that without a detailed investigation of these experiences, and I haven't had the opportunity to do that, but I don't rule out any of those options when it comes to his visions and other paranormal experiences.
0: Anything else we should say before we go? Oh, two things. First, there's a lot more
1: to know about Black Elk, including additional really interesting paranormal experiences he had. For listeners who would like to learn more, I strongly recommend Father Camp's books, which are the best ones on the subject and we'll have links to them so that you can get them for yourself. Also, I want to recommend the documentary produced in the Diocese of Rapid City, Walking the Good Red Road, which we'll also have a link to, so you can watch it online for free. Second, I want to say a special word of thanks to Deacon Bill White and Father Michael Steltenkamp. They both were very helpful. As I was researching these episodes, I very much appreciate the assistance they gave me, and any mistakes that slipped through are mine.
0: Jimmy, what's your bottom line on Black Elk?
1: Nicholas Black Elk was a remarkable figure. Originally a Lakota warrior, medicine man, and holy man, he became a sincere Lakota Catholic and a Catholic catechist. His story is exciting, inspiring, and intriguing, and despite those who would like to claim him as a symbol of non-Christian belief, the
0: truth about him deserves to be known. I agree. I'm so glad we did these two episodes. I'm so glad to get to know Nicholas Black Elk. Me too. And I hope
1: hope, uh, that uh, folks in the Diocese of Rapid City appreciate the work we did here, and it'll help make their, their local servant of God even better known.
0: Exactly. So, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listeners and viewers?
1: We'll have links to Michael Steltenkamp's book, Nicholas Black Elk, Medicine Man, Missionary, Mystic. Also his book, Black Elk, Holy Man of the Oglala. Clyde Holler's book, The Black Elk Reader, John Nyhart's book, Black Elk Speaks, John uh, Joseph Eeps Brown's book, The Sacred Pipe, Hilda Nyhart's book, Black Elk and Flaming Rainbow, the Walking the Good Red Road documentary, uh, the Black Elk canonization website, also information on Black Elk, the Death Song Custom, the Ghost Dance Movement, Wovoka, the Ghost Dance War, The book, Black Elk Speaks, information about the book, including criticism of it. Also information on Iron Eyes Cody, the Chinese rights controversy, an article on Father Vincent Capadano's canonization, and an article on Black Elk's canonization process, including miracles that have
0: been reported. Excellent. So that's it from us for this time. We would love to hear your theories about the servant of God, Nicholas Black Elk, let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Aikens Mysterious World Facebook page, sending an email to feedback at mysterious.fm, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, visiting the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or calling our Mysterious Feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515.
1: And I want to mention that if you use the address feedback at mysterious.fm, it will go directly to me. Um, Sometimes people aren't sure about that, and they'll try to email me at another address, and it makes things more complicated for me because I need to keep the mysterious world correspondence all in one place, and I just have to forward it myself. to a a Mysterious account, and so it'll help me if you want to contact me about the show to use feedback at Mysterious.fm rather than some other address. I will get your email. Also, I want to say a special thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work they do on this episode and all the episodes of Mysterious World. They're available for hire to do your video and animation work. And you can check out what they do by going to my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. While you're there, I'd appreciate it if you, you know, like the videos to hit the like button. And also, I'd appreciate it if you'd subscribe. I'm, I'm trying to grow my channel and I'd really appreciate it. So hit the subscribe button and also the bell notification so that YouTube will always notify you. Whenever I have a new Mysterious World video or one of the other videos I put out. Finally, I want to say a special thank you to Melanie Betnelli for her voice work on this episode. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week we're going to one of the places that Black Elk visited during his life, London, England. You'll recall that he went there during the trip where he performed for and met Queen Victoria or Grandmother England. But we're going to a more recent year. Than Nicholas Black Elk's life. We're going to the year 1984, and we're going to be hearing a story about a woman who started hearing voices in her head. She concluded that she had gone insane, but the voices insisted they were trying to help her. They told her that she had an urgent medical condition that needed to be treated. The British medical authorities were very reluctant to perform the test, but they finally did just to set her mind at rest. And when they did, they found that what the voices had been telling her was absolutely
0: true. So you won't want to miss that. Amazing. Folks, be sure to share the podcast with your friends and write a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from to help us grow our community and reach more listeners. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm 267. And remember to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Rosary Army, featuring award-winning Catholic podcasts, rosary resources, videos, and the School of Mary online community prayer and learning platform. Learn how to make them, pray them, and give them away while growing in your faith at rosaryarmy.com and schoolofmary.com and by Tim Shevlin's Personal Fitness Training for Catholics, providing spiritual and physical wellness through personalized nutrition, workout and prayer programs, and daily accountability check-ins. Learn more by visiting fitcatholics.com. Until next time, Jimmy Akin, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. Once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Technology. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com technology.